Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Tread on Me. We're excited to do uh, that. Start today. We've got some fun news stories. And how are you doing today, Jake? I'm great. How are you? Oh, it's a Tuesday morning. Good, pretty good holiday weekend. Just enjoying my coffee and ready to uh, rant about the news. <laughs> I'm excited. Right. I like it. First up, catch up on a story. Uh, we did this, I think, our very first episode. We talked about the Johnson and Johnson case. Basically, how they were going to, yeah, they're going to court um, for their role in marketing and uh, spreading the opioid crisis. So they are ruled guilty. Just an update for listeners: almost six hundred million. They're being uh, fined and have to pay. That's the price for their accountability in it. According to the case, the statement its burden that the defendants uh, mes- misled marketing and promotion of opioids creating a nuisance that helped spark the uh, opioid crisis. And they basically, they kind of said they, they led to an increased rates of addiction and said the company kind of downplayed the risks of addiction of opioids. And, and they actually trained their sales representative to tell doctors that the risk was like two, two and a half percent or less if the drugs were prescribed by a doctor. So the company apparently actually prescri- targeted physicians who um, prescribed a high amount of opioids as, and they saw them as key customers. So here we have the government basically saying... <laughs> Hey, we can regulate your marketing. If your marketing is marketing something potentially bad, we can find you for it. Um, where is all this money going? I don't know. My, I know Johnson Johnson plans to appeal the case, but if this is anything like what was it that BP case, the spilled oil? Who wants to bet the taxpayers will end up subsidizing most of the payment? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, that, I just find it funny that I'm like, yeah, yeah, shocked me if that happens. Yeah, that, that, I just find it funny that Johnson Johnson's being held liable when it's the doctors prescribing this stuff. So, if well, a doctor, doctors are just glorified salesmen at this point. Pretty much. So, yeah, f- but it's interesting to me. So, they, it literally says in the case ruling, so they had key customers of them were physicians who prescribed a high amo- amount of opioids. So, uh, what it sounds like to me is that these physicians are already prescribing a high amount of opioids and are already kind of the people to blame if anything, and Johnson Johnson's coming to him and saying, well, use our opioids. And the person goes, okay, I'm already doing it. I, I don't know. It just it seems to me that most of the burden would fall on the doctors in this case, or actually, time, time out, most of the burdens would fall on the patients for not reading the warning labels, overdosing. And then if we're, blame, if we're going up the chain of blame, I think physicians well, so would be next. Well, you're, you're blaming the victim, Sam. All right, we can't have personal responsibility in the United States anymore. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. But it's going to be interesting to see how this happens. There's a lot of cases about the opo- opioids uh, similar to this at different companies across the country. And it'll be interesting to see that this sets a precedent, basically, if uh, your marketing can be deemed as increasing a public harm, you should be fined for it. So it'll be interesting to see if this extends to areas outside the drug uh, field in the near future. Something to keep an eye on. Um, next up, China. Apparently, they showed a willingness to start negotiating trades after that whole Trump tweet and the market crashed by 700 points. But uh, even with this willingness to trade, Trump just still slapped new tariffs on him that started uh, started Sunday. Uh, China hasn't retaliated yet and still seems open for talk. So does this kind of seem like China, like we might be winning this trade war? Not the same. There's, there's no winners to trade wars, Jake. But is this a sign that we might actually be pulling ahead and China just might be caving? Oh, yeah. I mean, China, China's in a, is obviously in the worst spot than the United States. It's something that always kind of annoys me about how much um, weight people put behind how powerful China is when they're really not. You have to, <clears throat> you just have to 
get it through their even their demographics for specifically out of the 1.4 billion people that live there 1.1 billion of them are live had the same standards of living as uh, Nigeria so these while China is a powerful country it's nowhere in the ballpark of China now China has been trying to rise and become a regional power they're nowhere in the same same level as the United States and um, I don't really understand what the point of this trade war really is maybe bring jobs back home but you know most of those jobs that come back home anyways are probably going to be automated but because that's just cheaper anyways but I don't um, I don't I don't I don't I don't agree with the trade war or anything I think we should just have open and free markets because that's how you get the best outcomes but I think China's gonna they're gonna not fare well in this yeah, it's interesting that like that they haven't hit ret um, retaliatory tariffs yet, especially going into election cycle. Because for some reason they still negotiate some sort of trade deal, or they back off and stop retaliating. It's going to be an easy victory for Trump to claim to rile up his base coming to the election cycle. So things are falling a little chips are falling into place for Trump to make a serious run, if not win the election again. Uh, speaking of like election and. Trump running for it. The New York Times, I don't know if you saw the story, it was kind of interesting. So the New York Times has reported that undercover operatives are working to discredit their news journalists um, prior to Trump's election. And basically they're doing this by posting embarrassing info about their past, about, about things that journalists have done or said in their past. So this is like the fake news or media warfare is heating up. Uh, they're, they're just coming after them. Uh, I'm, I'm not surprised by this. I don't think it's a very fair tactic for the right you know or if this is true and everything like for the right to come up and start mudslinging for pe things people said or did in the past but i also don't think the times should be surprised i think other news organizations like cnn and everything should watch out because they haven't really played a a, a played a news game where they try to be unbiased to present the facts they've been pretty one-sided so to cry wolf now that someone else is playing mean too is kind of hypocritical in my mind yeah because they're the ones who kind of started this whole idea where you're only as good as the worst thing you've ever done and if you thought you know sam if you thought 2015 and 16 were crazy years to be an american just wait it's 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 gonna be worse it's gonna it's gonna get crazy man well it's like i sent you a news article about that it was a nascar driver or some race car driver whose grandfather said something racist or i think you know, something pretty racist or offensive back in the day um and his grandfather's like dead now and they someone pulled the sponsorship for him like, this is yeah, ridiculous. They don't, like, yeah, go. They don't want they don't want your apology. They just want you to pay penance and to be punished and to suffer. These people are not good people. They are they are full of hate in the words of Jordan Peterson. Yes, and I and I think the right side is full of hate too, and they're coming at him that they're coming at him and just as dirty as the tactic of the less been going, but like I said, this is the New York Times should have expected this, and I'm sure CNN and the other ones will be next. And this whole mud slinging propaganda war will continue. <laughs> and these people, they're just, they're just like, they've been sitting in their ivory towers lecturing the, you know, because they're obviously most of them are probably all very well educated people from like Ivy League schools and things like that. But they've been sitting in their ivory towers for so long lecturing the population. And when they finally get a little pushback, it, it's un it's unheard of. And it does seem pretty one sided. I remember reading like uh one tweet. It's like people are freaking out about was it his name Sean Spicer, that old Trump administrative person? 
I freak out about him being oh, yeah. dancing, dancing in the stars, and no one's throwing off. Um, oh god, what's the governor of Virginia? North, North, Northern. I can't remember. Starts at the N. But no one's gotten uh no one's gotten too upset or kicked him out of office or freaked out too much about his blackface yet. So it does seem like like news organizations are pretty one sided when it comes to historical things you've done in the past. It's just shows you, man. It's all about politics, not really about principle. And that's why we exist, guys, to show you a little bit of principle in the politics. <laughs> uh, so this is interesting. I'm going to kick out the next news article. Customs officers are now legally allowed to search travelers' personal electronics without a warrant, whether they're visitors or American citizens. So here's some background, then you can go on your rant about how hey, hey, every right. Whatever happened to the Fourth Amendment? <laughs> right. Well, this is interesting. So it's being sued contested in court right now saying you need a need a search warrant before such invasive search but right now travelers can refuse access to their device but because if you refuse access the custom officers don't have to let you in the country and um the lawyers are recommending that travelers carry burner phones encrypt their devices or simply not bring electronics and apparently a harvard student was denied entry to the u.s after officers searched his phone laptop and found that some of his friends had written anti-american social media posts so this is this is astounding. You can literally, like, they can literally, I mean, there's one thing for the TSA to pat your ball sack and feel up your titties. But now, not, well, I don't know what's actually worse than doing that or going through your phone. Most people would probably say feel my balls before I go through my search history. I think that's just the 21st yeah. century. But this is crazy. Literally search your phone. If there's something they don't agree with, even if you're an American citizen, they don't have to let you in the country. Like, what the hell is happening? Um, they're slowly and methodically chipping away at the right uh, the bill of rights thing is, is it's been happening for decades but whenever somebody ever tries to say anything about it that hey the government the government's coming for your rights and coming for you in the name of safety and security they just call you a fucking crazy person and tell you to shut up and you know sit down little boy that's ridiculous yeah, if you leave the country now the, the fact that you have to leave your electronic at home and carry a burner phone <clears> or like super encrypt your device and who's to say if they, someone encrypts their device like lawyers say an officer will say well i can't access your device you still can't come to the country until you unencrypt it for me like this is and it's just gonna get worse it's only going to get worse it's there there is no there's doesn't seem to be any kind of pushback when it comes to this and both sides of the aisle and how dangerous these things are. Like even, I don't know if you have any stories from the red flag laws, but that's something that's been really popular in the last couple months is red flag laws. That, that one just got passed in New York City and it, all the, the, these laws do is they trample all over citizens' rights in, in the name of safety. And a lot of people who are proponents of these laws stand on the graves of children and people who are victims of mass shootings to tell you that this is what we need to prevent those. And I just see it getting worse. I only see it getting worse because you, you, you look at these like Second Amendment douchebags screaming about how the Second Amendment is there so they can have guns and how they'll rise up against the government, but they're never going to do it because they've, the government's already taken, has been taking away your rights for decades now, since before I was even born. Yeah, you're, so, you're right. They cry wolf a lot. Never going to happen. I think the whole point of the Second Amendment was to be able to rise up and protect the other amendments and other rights like you said yeah exactly. our other rights here's here's a blatant fourth amendment right being stripped from people and the second amendment people will just sit back and say well it's not our second amendment so we don't care and <laughs> tell you what, that's the only right you're willing to fight and die for come on it's in the name of safety you know this is how we're going to keep you safe you know this is the same this is the same government 
that knew about the shooter in Florida, they knew that this guy was, there's something wrong with him and he was probably going to hurt people. And what they do? Nothing. You know what I mean? And this is the same government that arrested a man for having honey because they thought it was liquid meth. Yeah. So there's some go multiple. ahead. Give them, yeah, just give them, give them the way, you know, just keep, keep giving them, you know, the method and means to just, you know, strip you of everything. Yeah, because if I recall, there's been multiple cases of mass shooters where the government had plenty of warning and they didn't follow up. And then, like, the people they do bust down the doors, you know. Uh, what was that Um, the anniversary of that one family who his wife and kid were shot? That was, like, that was a setup for, like, a red flag law almost in a way. Like, the government tried to, what was the name of that family or that event? I can't, I can't remember. remember. Oh, the are you talking about the the Ruby Ridge? Yeah, or? Ruby Ridge. It's like one yeah. of those instances where someone, you know, just a little bit, you know, concerned about government size, government pushes him, tries to set him up for a crime. He doesn't yeah. go for it. And like that's like a self-made Somebody... <laughs> the government government literally created that problem. And then you have actually what the red flag laws are supposed to be, like I said, the Florida shooter, or there's other examples out there where they actually knew about this person. It's been reported many times and they didn't, I know it sounds terrible to say, but they didn't manufacture that terrorism. So why should they worry about it? Yeah, dude, the, I was on, uh, I'm on one of these local Facebook politic pages for my, my town that I live in. And somebody was talking about Ruby Ridge. And I just, the, the amount of people saying if this man just would have, would have, would have complied with police, his family would have still been alive. And I'm like, dude, are you kidding me? So police officers and people are doing harm and absolutely horrific things you're still supposed to comply with them when do you stop when does it stop well it, it eventually never stops i know people say we're a long way off from stalin russia or nazi germany but this is where it starts where a vast, vast majority of people say you have to obey the law no matter what the law says no matter morals like ignore basic human rights and and people say oh well we're not killing people yet or really lock people up or torturing them etc well i mean Neither was Germany overnight either, or, well, we or Russia have overnight. Concentration camps. Sam. This is no. We this is have, true. Yeah, we already have concentration camps, and fucking our president is literally Hitler, Hitler surrounded by a bunch of fucking triple Nazis. So I don't, I don't understand it. I don't get it. Well, people don't see it because it happens so slowly. That's well, that's the key. That, for and it. it's because they're 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 probably convinced that once their guy's in office, or if they were if they were in charge, they would be completely unable and you know unable to be corrupted and they're they're just they're perfect you know What's that? Oh, so not, met, not a malevolent bone in their bodies right he mentioned jordan peterson either but isn't that one thing he says like when people say well it wasn't real communism or socialism or if our guy was in charge we could have done it and he labeled that as like one of the most narcissistic egotistic things you could say because basically what you're claiming well if i was in charge or my person was in charge i could bring on the utopia yeah i could, I could no. make it all happen it's exactly the same thinking where where you know what's best for millions of people because these millions of people are dumber than you and you went to this I went to this fancy schmancy school in I don't know the Midwest and I just learned from my communist professor I I don't know I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> no no you're basically what kind of Murray Rothbard talked about that and um uh, it's this, I can't remember the name of the book, but it's the, and, no, yeah, the anatomy of the state. I believe it was Rothbard who wrote that, but basically said the intellectuals and the government have an alliance because the intellectuals sometimes don't provide like goods and services and everything or feel like they're, they're more important than the common blue collar worker or things like that. And their ideas are important. 
And so they've kind of teamed an alliance with the uh, powerful governments to to preach this. And the government gives them what they want as their rapport, I mean, as their um, reputation. They give them gifts, benefits, make them feel esteem, and they in turn teach big government. It's a a cycle, but I encourage listeners to kind of read the anatomy of the state. I'm not that far anarchist, but um, it it brings up some good points about how the intellectuals and the government have created kind of an unspoken alliance to each push their own agendas. Dude, that's Sam. That's why, you know, in our last podcast, I was going off and telling you you and uh, Dave, David, that I, uh, um, I think that the United, the Constitution is a wonderfully written document. Because it, it basically kind of decentralized authority and made government incompetent. If I was the person in charge and I was the sole dictator, Sam, I could not, without a shadow of a doubt, tell you I'd do all good for humanity and people. I probably would be susceptible to the best, you know, to, to you know any number of awful things. You know, what is it? What's the say? How the saying goes is, you know, power attracts the worst and corrupts the best. So, yep. I, I I think that that's why the United States Constitution is great because it really makes the government dumb <laughs> well sadly it hasn't really taken the effect i think the founding fathers meant i'll, I'll have to dig more into that because like, like i mentioned last episode there's some the anti-federalist papers kind of explained how the constitution was going to be the downfall of the country and lead to central government which i find interesting because it's worded in a way not to lead that but i don't know enough about it to make a good argument about that so that's gonna be something I have to educate myself on maybe i'll have to read it Oh, yeah, me too. All right. Uh, sort of a new segment. Bernie said some interesting things over the weekend. And normally I don't really report what Bernie says, but he's quickly becoming a front runner here. He might even beat Joe Biden. I see some new polls actually saying Bernie's might be pulling the, the lead here, which is interesting because I, I still think Biden has it locked up. But we should start paying more attention to what Bernie's saying as he's becoming a more serious candidate, at least in my mind. So um, during an appearance on MSNBC, Sanders told Chris Hayes the U.S. needs an aggressive federal approach to taking over the sorry aggressive approach for the federal government to produce electricity. And basically, Hayes says um, that hey, you want to be like the Tennessee Valley Authority and have an extension for the whole country. And Sanders agreed with this and said, yeah, 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 we should we should be like the TVA. And you can't nibble on the edges. And basically, this is a suggestion. He didn't come out and flat say it, but. But Hayes basically said, you want the federal government to take over the whole thing. And Sanders, not at, not at an agreement, said it should be like the Tennessee Valley Authority, which is a government controlled. And it's like he hasn't learned the lesson of Venezuela. You can't take over the entire energy sector <laughs> and, have, and have good outcomes. So this might be a hint toward Bernie's plan. I think Bernie does, does want most, if not the entire energy sector, under the government control. Yeah. Uh. I mean, that's what they, because that's, that goes down to what we were just talking about earlier, Sam, when people, they get so wrapped up in the idea that their ideas are the best ideas and they know what's best for millions of people. And at the end of the day, no, it's not. It, it really isn't. You like, I think there's a pretty good analogy that I think I sent you with um, Thanos, Thanos from the Avengers, where Thanos thought he knew what was best for the whole universe. And when reality, his ideas were the worst because they didn't account for, you know, personal choice and freedoms and liberties and things like that. There's too many moving parts yeah, for one person. What's interesting about Thanos, it's almost the same for Bernie Sanders. Or I think any big government in history who's tried to take over like this is when Thanos discovered he was wrong, you know, when he met everybody and said, oh, I screwed up. There will always be resistance instead of rethinking and saying, well, how do I make this better? He just doubled down on his policy. <laughs> it's like, exactly. I'm gonna, gonna kill you all now. If I'm not saying, uh, obviously, Thanos saying, I'm not saying a politician, but 
But he just doubled down on a bad policy, right? and th this is just doubling down. I mean, we've seen the example of what happens when the government takes over a whole sector of the economy in the past. And I know every time I mention it, anybody, in the, anybody not like, you know, agreeing with smaller government, they just say, oh, you're using Venezuela as a right-wing talking point, but which I hate. It's a stupid excuse because it's literally a living example of what happens when, when a sector like this is taken over. It's just bad, bad incentives, and then it leads to a collapse. It's the same thing. I don't understand why Bernie is so popular with the millennial generation, because what it seems to me is all these people who really support Bernie Sanders believe that this man is going to go in there and he's going to fight off the banks and he's going to fight off the establishment Democrats and Republicans and he's going to hard charge the way for a new shining and bright utopian future. <laughs> but in reality, Bernie Sanders fucking bent over backwards and just took it from Hillary Clinton not even two, was it three, two, two years ago, was it three and a half years ago? Yeah. Yeah, so if he if you if he didn't fight off Hillary Clinton when when clearly she stole that primary uh, nomination from him, how is he going to go in there and fight off these fucking bankers and these people who are established in in Washington who are going to be going up against him? I mean, if you can't fight and and at the end and after that he got like fucking three houses. So I think it's four now. <laughs> oh, four. Not that so, it's important, but. So if Bernie Sanders is going to go in there and fight for fight off all these greedy capitalist capitalists and corporations, why didn't he fight off Hillary Clinton? I want the answer to it, and it can't be well. You, I, no, I just the DNC is corrupt. DNC is corrupt. Well, obviously the DNC is corrupt. All of fucking Washington is. So if he yeah. couldn't just fight off his own fucking party, why? How is he going to do that for the rest of the the uh, political establishment? I always do it the same way every every socialist leader does it. He's just going to kind of team up with big business in the beginning, put administrators over him, and then eventually they'll be criminals once he has like the kind of government fingers and everything. And then they'll be kind of ousted like you saw um, the bourgeois, is that how you say it, in Russia. And then, boom, eventually be complete government oh, control yeah. and downfall from there. But he said something else interesting over this week too. And the actual quote is, from Bernie, China has done more to address extreme poverty than any other country in the history of civilization. So I was like, first of all, I'm kind of dumbfounded. So I kind of looked up some numbers and my first thought came up was a great Chinese famine. So if you see the government estimate, it's 15 million dead with others having estimates as high as 80 million people dead from this famine. So I don't know if like you start after this number, like, but I mean, if you count like maybe like starving and killing poor people, then sure, maybe China's done a good job. Well, no, he isn't wrong. He isn't wrong. This is we know that China has the reason why poverty has almost cut in half in the last two decades is because because so many fucking people live in China and they started into and but the reason isn't because it was centralized fucking communism. It was the free market. They create the China created special economic zones all over their country to where it was not communism. It was essentially a, a, a lot like a bait like damn near close to the most free market you could possibly get and look what happened millions and millions and millions of people suddenly just rose up out of poverty and yeah now actually i actually have those numbers so it was um yeah. so the world bank so it was 850 million people lift themselves out of extreme poverty and it fell from 88 percent the poverty rate in 1981 to 0.7 percent in 2015 and that was measured by the percentage of people living on the equivalent of a dollar ninety a day in U.S. dollars, um, but, but you're right. Um, 
from the research, it appears market and economic reforms is what lifted this this rate. So even then, though, I think Bernie's claim is big. So yeah, they have done tremendous progress in the last three decades now. But you, even with that progress, I mean, he's saying that they've done more more to address poverty in any other country in the history of civilization. I mean, this isn't like 30 years. This is the history of civilization he's making this claim. And this is, a, I mean, it's a big claim to make. I was looking at too, like, um, so, I mean, this is still, so during China's per poverty rate right now, they're, doo -doo -doo -doo, here it is. Um, so there's still around 500 million people in China or 40% of, uh, of the population that survive on uh, $5 or 50 cents or, or less a day. So, well, I mean, well, I guess you've lifted a lot of people out of poverty. You have to remember, these people are still living between 2 to $5 a day of U.S. dollars. So it's not like they've lifted out of, according to like the world poverty, but it's not like they're living like glamorous lives, Jake. No, I, I that's why I was talking, that's why I was talking about earlier with like the, the idea that China is just this rising power on the distance and they're going to come over here like the Huns and, you know, wreck us, but they most the majority of their people live ha, like live in fucking mud huts and shit right mm -hmm. and and like even, even i was even uh i think i was reading uh i was reading some some something last night about the chinese communist party's military even their military isn't as is, isn't as fancy schmancy and great as everyone likes to think it is is because most of the people who are high high ranking officers in their military got in there through bribery so that not not merit so that china isn't as as great as you know everybody likes to freaking you know get all excited about because they're pretty good at propaganda yeah they are and it, it's just amazing to me um though that no like bernie is on to something they've done a lot about poverty but it does it's sad that he's he doesn't see that it was economic and free market reforms that led to that and he, I mean, he just sees an authoritarian government who let up, let up on the brakes a little bit and thinks, well, that's how it has to be done to lift poverty out of everywhere, to still have that authoritarian government what and do you keep the brake yeah. at the right level. Yeah, what do you expect from a guy that thinks that the Second Amendment is so that, you know, Americans can hunt? It's, <laughs> it, you know, so I don't, it, he, he's a fool and he's, he knows how to play the game to rally people up. So he, he might be up at. He might be up against Donald Trump. It'll be fucking hilarious to see those two old, old weirdos who are probably on the opposite ends of the spectrum going at it. But you know. <laughs> it will be a fun debate for sure. Uh, that kind of brings us to a main topic. We haven't done one in a while, but uh, I thought this was interesting. It's an older article, but uh, it still checks out. It still checks out, and the numbers have actually gotten bigger since. So, Cato Institute. And this is on the welfare, the, the welfare in the U.S. United States right now. So, and. I'll go over the kind of the statistics, and then we'll kind of talk about what this means because it, it kind of addresses the poverty issue that Bernie wants to solve, and I would argue that we've already solved the poverty issue from from the numbers here. So, in 2012, they did a study, and they found out that federal spending was at 670 billion a year across 126 welfare programs, and state and local governments at about 284 billion dollars a year on welfare programs as well. So, almost a trillion spent a year. Um, only about a fifth of this is actual cash programs. That's a counter argument a lot of people like to make. The rest is spent on healthcare, education, community programs, things like that. But at the end of the day, the total dollar value of goods being spent, on, total dollar value being spent on welfare programs is about still a trillion a year. So it amounts to $20,000 of cash for every poor person in America, or almost $62,000 per poor family of three. 
and this has like grown a lot under Bush, expanded a ton under Obama too at 41% a year. Well, despite, is that, yeah. Is that money that is going directly to these people or is it also being funneled into the institutions and yeah, uh, yeah. So that's what it's that structure that has to support these the distribution of services to people who are living in poverty. Well, that brings up kind of like the the end thing I'm kind of going to say. So yeah, a little over 200 billion, so about a, a fifth of it is direct cash to recipients. The rest are on programs. I'd imagine some of that goes into administrative costs as well. The article didn't talk about that, but uh, the kind of they summed up the article, and then we'll go into like kind of the conclusions like you were talking about. Um, so we spent over 15 trillion dollars in all since the war on poverty started in 1965. And we still have 46 million Americans living in poverty. And the only time, so, so the only time the poverty rate has actually declined was in the 1990s. And this is where the state was experimenting with actually tightening welfare eligibility. Um, so it's kind of interesting that, to that. Now, to give some credit, all this spending does seem to decrease the severity, severity of poverty, but not actually bring people out of it. Um, so here's kind of my, my quick take on, like you said, expenditures. So to kind of look at numbers like this, either we're doing something wrong, we're throwing out money at an issue, and throwing money at an issue doesn't fix it, because despite all this, all this money, the poverty rate has remained pretty constant, even though spending has increased. So you're talking about the big administrative costs. It's kind of brought up, and how much was administrative? Um, well, this is what makes me think that something like Yang's UBI or something similar to it would actually make sense if we're going to keep the welfare program. So hear me out because I know I'm sounding a bit socialist right now. So think about this. So let's say you just did Yang's UBI for only people below the poverty threshold, which in the study was 18530 for a family of three. Let's say you said, hell, everybody under this poverty threshold gets $4,000 cash a month for a family, a family of three. So... Um, uh, sorry, just the family of three gets four thousand a month. So that leads the salary to a total of forty-eight thousand dollars a year in cash benefits. Remember, don't don't give them in education programs, incentives, healthcare. You just straight cash forty-eight thousand. That that would allow you to give literally a family forty-eight thousand dollars. Still cut on average spending on welfare by twelve thousand dollars per family of three, and you'd give. You, you would give the family the ability to make decisions what they do with their money. They could delegate it as they see fix. We all know like the more local a decision is, the better it's spent. So it's not crazy to think about like mathematically, we have solved poverty. If we just did a UBI just for people under poor, mathematically we'd end poverty because everybody making $48,000 family of three, they'd be well above the poverty line. And it works for like singles or families of four or families of five, you could adjust it, but you still end poverty and cut welfare spending by a massive amount. Is that crazy to think about? Yeah, it's interesting to because for our giving, if, if we're already, you know, funneling more money than just what you explained, what what are we really doing? You know, why why is why is there such a disparity, quote unquote, in the United States of America? Well, there's a lot of little things that go into the welfare program. Um, a lot of it's bureaucratic. So, I mean, a lot of these, there's 126 programs right now with the federal government. A lot of them have duplicate efforts. And like, if you're eligible for one, you can't be eligible for the other. Or if you're, I think there's studies out there basically say, I can't remember the exact numbers, but somewhere in between like 10,000 and 35,000. Uh, if you're making that much money a year, like it doesn't make any sense to try to get a job with more money because you'll lose benefits and still be stuck in the same spot. So there's bad incentives behind the current welfare program. There's duplication of efforts. 
Um, and I know people worry about this, like, hey, well, what if we give $4,000 a month to to the drug addict and he's going to spend it on, on drugs? And well, if I got $4,000 a month, I wouldn't do a fucking thing. I'd sit here and play video games every single day. <laughs> right but i <laughs> it will be fun but hey you think about that so you, you could you could still kind of address these issues in my head by saying okay let's just do the ubi we solve poverty mathematically there's still gonna be people that make bad choices with their money and if, if this is a, such a huge issue that we're we're so scared to do this and get, get rid of all these programs just do one efficient pro more efficient program which is kind of scary to talk about but let's just humor the the idea of it then you could still put incentives behind it and so let's say the federal government was just just an administrator for this money it just handed out the money and then to and the state and local governments maybe did the laws for it so maybe maybe a town in missouri says you know what we are worried about people to spend money on drugs so we're gonna give you four thousand dollars a month but you have to bare minimum provide a roof for your family of three or family of four and have to spend this much on food and if you don't you're gonna look at the four thousand dollars next month that's still while i disagree with the whole premise that would still put more local decisions and well, they will localize the decision making and since it's other people's money being given to these people, I don't really feel as bad about them controlling the resources. You know how sometimes we're about government making um, uh, bad decisions, not allowing people to do what they want with their money. Well, it isn't their money in the first place. So if local communities want to make certain rules to get this UBI, whatever, they could do it. But I've been, I've been thinking about this after seeing those numbers. I'm just like, well, it's, in, it's insane. Like you, you could do that and you could even make the money less. It's, it's insane. <laughs> Um, maybe it's just all part of the plan and Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton are sitting in their ivory tower somewhere, you know, just twirling their mustaches. Yeah, the, I mean, the article ended by like saying like no individual or is eligible for every program. So, I mean, no, no one's getting like the full, no family three is getting the full $60,000. Um, and many are, um, you know, many are just uh, target the wrong people and spill over the poverty line, things like that. But then, I mean, again, like I said, like five times about this, the end of the day is we're still spending more than enough money to fight poverty, actually mathematically reduce it. And we could still save, we could still cut the welfare state by a, by 20%. Even if you run the numbers, you could even cut the welfare state spending by almost half and still get everybody below the poverty line above it just by giving them straight cash. And then, boom, hey, look at that, Bernie Sanders. I cut the welfare state in half, mathematically eliminated poverty, and how long is that, Jake, seven minutes? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, hey, well, think about it, though. They won't like that because then they don't have as much control as they want. I know, it's it's true, but that's why I argue, like, they're all about control, but if they really care about the good, I'd say that if something like this wanted to get passed, this is the, I mean, because the, the federal government can administrate it, and the local government be the only ones with the, the power to put limitations on it or controls on it because it would incentivize better decision making. Overall, I still think it's a very socialist program, shouldn't be done, etc. But if we're really going to live with this welfare state, I mean, that's a that's a better way to do it. Welfare doesn't work. I mean, even the Romans tried it and it didn't even work back then. Yeah, no one no one really learns though. I mean, yeah. I feel bad for Gang. I mean, I've, I think I think if you listen to this podcast, you could you could take my plan and roll with it and probably move up in the polls. Ah, give me a break, dude. <laughs> All the Democrats are doing is just like vote for me, vote for me, vote for me. Here's what I can give you. Vote for me, vote for me, vote for me. It's all they ever do. <laughs> yeah, Yang just hasn't put his price tag high enough. That's a problem. Yeah. He's focusing yep. on, on everybody. He should just focus his his UBI on the poor and then yeah. uh, show some math and we might be fine. <laughs> um, well, a few things to wrap up the show about going on overseas. I'll quick 
quick to the highlights. I don't know a ton about them, but if you got more insight, feel free to share, Jake. But um, first up, there were attacks against through, uh, Iranian allied forces in three countries. Uh, Israel was blamed for all three of these, but they only took credit for one of them. So, and uh, I mean, this is kind of interesting because it's gearing, ramping up violence and Hezbollah has already vowed to retaliate. So the Iran-Israel situation looks like it's heating up. So just as, we th just as I kind of felt the war might be winding down a little, I think um, I think Israel's kind of uh, getting back into there, Jake. Yeah, who knows, man? Like everybody, because I, I, well, I, I hate saying this. I don't think I, 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 I really care what happens in the Middle East anymore it doesn't affect me and I know that a lot of people over there are suffering but I do think that Israel is an ally but I do think Israel does a lot of shady things as well and I don't think that um, escalating tensions with Iran is going to you know is in the best interest for everyone in the world or even in the region because if you, know, if you look at the, the kind of the situation that's going on in the middle east right now that there's there's a huge there's a cold war in the middle east and it could actually escalate to something much larger um that could you know go throughout the entire world and um with saudi arabia and iran at each other's throats and even this this conflict has even gotten israel and saudi arabia to kind of closely sort of work together but at the end of the day why 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 why? Well, I mean, what 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 does Iran really do to everyone out there? Besides, they do well. Never mind. That's not true. They do. They, they fund do, a lot of terrorism yeah, and other stuff. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, it's still like though Israel's just kind of like I feel like they're escalated things that weren't there. I know they're always worried about you know being attacked and stuff like that. As you know, they're going to be the rest of their history because both sides hate each other. Both sides have done unspeakable things to each other and war crimes. They're literally. You know, not, I, I, maybe I missed something that happened in the Middle East a week or two ago. But basically, from my understanding, you know, kind of the same Middle East situation as always. Israel, like, hey, let's go uh, bomb a few targets uh, that are uh, that are um, uh, Iranian-based forces. And what's what? What do they think is going to happen? Of course, people are going to vow to retaliate. Like, this is just this is getting things out of hand. <laughs> Can't wait uh, to see how bad it gets. Yeah. On the on the bright side, though, uh, for a little bit of maybe peace in the Middle East area, um, the U.S. is prepping to withdraw troops from Afghanistan. And Trump has been reported as wanting all troops out by the 2020 election. And the Trump administration is also preparing to initiate direct talks with uh, the Iran-backed forces in Yemen in an effort to end the four-year war. So <clears throat> it looks like if all goes well, we might be winding down um, two wars over there, which well, could be a step in the right direction. Because I'm more of a hawk, Sam, and I've been—I've actually been reading one of Nagel's books, um, and I—I I, I do agree. Let's pull out of there. Let's get our troops out of there. Let's just end it. Let's get done with it. However, these—this is going to have unintended consequences, and you have to look at it. Just what happened when President Obama pulled out a ton of troops? What was that in 2013 or 12? Yeah, right and, after the surge or something, or yeah. a little bit after. Yeah. What What happened right after that? ISIS took over a huge portion of of the uh, area that had been fought over for almost a decade. So this is going to have an unintended consequences, and we're going to see on the news people screaming about how there's lots of chaos and violence and things out there because that's what happens when you leave when you 
topple a regime, this is just a lesson the United States needs to learn. When you topple a regime, no matter how bad that regime is, and you just leave it up for grabs by anyone, it's going to get worse. You look at Libya, you look at you look at Libya, you look at Iraq, Afghanistan, <clears throat> it's just gonna get worse. So us pulling our troops out of there, well, I do agree with it. It's probably going to have some chaotic consequences that happen afterwards. Well, yeah, I also wonder, like, yeah, I agree. The consequences are going to happen. But, I mean, if the Taliban and the Afghan government, Afghanistan government is sitting down and saying, we want the war to end, we want the U.S. out, I think, I mean, that's just, well, you're right, you're right, unintended consequences will happen. I think that's as good of a window as you're ever going to get to say, hey, we were in the, we we're in the country for, what, almost 20 years. Both sides seem to have peace. We're going to leave. Is everybody cool with that? And if both sides are cool with it, then I say if you leave and shit hits the fan, you can say, well, I mean, you can kind of watch. I mean, it sounds terrible because I can't fully wash your hands of it. But to the best that you can, you kind of wash your hands of it and said, you know what? We came to an agreement. It happened. If a civil war breaks out after, there's it's, it's out of our hands. It's your guys' issue because you came to the agreement. No, I, I, I don't disagree with you, but there is it's going to get bad because you just look at it. The history of this for the last 20 years. These people are these people over there are very motivated to fight for their you know their 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 freedom and their their what you know maybe perhaps even their religion and things like that and it's not gonna stop just because the United States says okay play nice after we're gone. Yeah, no, I agree. The wars, the the fighting is continue. Something's gonna happen, but. I, th I, we either got to commit all in. We either got to say, all in, we're staying forever, or we got pulled out and say, no matter what happens, we're, we're not getting involved unless this is like an international issue where, you know, all of G7 or all of NATO agrees, hey, atrocities are happening here that we all have to pitch in together to fix. Like, and like, you know, I, I don't think, I don't think it should be a solo project anymore. I think I, I, it's got to be one way or the other. We stay there for the rest of our lives or we get out. And I think now is as good a time as ever to get out. And hopefully we do. Hopefully Afghanistan and soon and hopefully Yemen isn't much behind it. I know we're not in Yemen with a troop presence so much to say, um, but it's still a bunch of atrocities there. So it seems like any sort of agreement that can get innocent people will stop being killed and the end of the fighting is going to be worth it. Well, that's all I got today. Got anything else for us, Jake? Yeah, this the Hong Kong protests are getting intense and violent. Uh, yeah, it's all a little bit about like I don't know, like fighting in the in the subway, people getting beat up by cops. They're mm -hmm. using um, blue water dye to mark protesters for arrest later. But that's about all I saw headline wise. So uh, they moved in. They moved in. Well, the quote unquote did they, did a like troop reallocation, but they moved in troops into Hong Kong, and um, the governor has been threatening to declare um, an emergency, which is probably more likely like martial law. But a lot of these protesters are starting to get be of the mindset that they can't be peaceful anymore. They have to start fighting. Mm. I feel like uh, it sounds weird. I feel like we should open a one. Th I don't want to get involved in another war or anything like that. I don't think we should get involved with the situation. <laughs> but honestly, if like I was present right now, I'd probably just look at Hong Kong and say, you know what, guys? If you want to go to revolution, fantastic. Do your own thing. But for those who don't, we're going to help on a one-way trip to America, a free ride. We'll just pick you up and take you. So if you want to get out, you want to do all that violence, like we'll take all those Hong Kongers who want some American freedom. We'll bring them over here and just have this big, you know, it, it seems like the most uh, non-aggressive way to get the people out that want to be out. And if China doesn't like it, just 
say, too bad. These people are still free. We'll take them over here. They'll well, add a lot to our society. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I've actually, I'm very surprised Donald Trump hasn't, well, the president hasn't used uh, Hong Kong as leverage in the trade war. That, to me, would seem like it would be something very useful to use as leverage. Like, hey, Xi Jinping, if you want this, you need to do this with Hong Kong or do something along the lines like this with Hong Kong. But maybe they just don't care. Well, maybe they are behind the scenes. Maybe that's why China hasn't retaliated tariffs yet or um, why they're open to trade talks. Maybe China's feeling a little bit of stress. And who knows? Maybe Trump's sitting there in a room with them and be like, uh, back down the trade war, I'm going to start an uh, army in Hong Kong. <laughs> Who oh, knows? God, I hope. I hope not. I hope. Not. I mean, I hope not either. But I mean, yeah, I don't know. He might. He might be using his leverage. It's interesting how China's acting with the trade war. But uh, imagine that, like a an insurgency in a, like a super mega city like Hong Kong. That would be destructive and just awful. Oh yeah, it'd be, it'd be a nightmare. And hope oh, that it, it's to me like I mentioned last time to Hong Kong. It's all a ticking clock anyway in 2047 it expires as far as i can remember and they just become part of china's legal system anyway so yeah. it's almost like a, it's almost like a dying gasp for freedom and i don't think anybody in the world community is incentivized enough at this point to say you know hong kong screw the contract we'll help you stay free like i just yeah. don't think that's i just don't think can't see that happen i can't see any country want to get involved in that so Good for Hong Kong fighting for it. If anybody wants out, I'd say, hey, let's invite them to different Western countries. I know it sucks to leave your home, but you're on a you're on a you're on a you're on a clock right now. So here's your chance. For real. All right. Well, I think that's all I got today. Anything else, Jake? No, that's it. Cool. Well, be sure to like us on Facebook or email us at try to me podcast at gmail.com. And if you haven't had a Minds account yet, sign up for it because Facebook annoys us sometimes. And then be sure to refer us. You got a code on Facebook so we get that dirty crypto mine currency. <laughs> Have a good day, everybody. Bye.